This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Adjust your tracking and all the playlist podcasts are sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema streaming and a selection of exceptional, independent, classic, and award-winning films from around the globe. Mubi's film experts handpick every single film they show. Each day they present a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. Visit mubi.com slash the playlist to start a special 30-day free trial. And things being how they are on Mubi, uh, there's always new titles popping up every day, one of which is one I've been meaning to catch up with for a very long time, and it is the Michael Powell film Peeping Tom, now available on Mubi. Evil Dead 2 popped up there right at the end of uh, October, appropriate for Halloween, still there for for almost a month. And one of the other films that Nicholas Winding Refn is exclusively curating for Mubi, Hot Thrills and Warm Chills. It's another, uh, it's, this one's a 1967 sort of B-movie that he has unearthed and helped uh, get a nice clean restoration out there for it. So uh, those are just a few of the titles that look really, really cool and intriguing on Mubi. And in these super busy movie times, uh, Mubi certainly, you know, demands your attention for sure. So we thank them for supporting our show and all the other podcasts on the Playlist Network. Now on to the show. Welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Offen. Joe, uh, I don't know if you realize this. There's there's a lot of movies to choose from these days. Like, week in, uh, week okay. out. Yeah. You mean just at any given point of all the titles ever released ever or just in the movie theater? <laughs> let's let's narrow the focus to your good point. I was a very broad statement. Uh, yeah, just in the theaters right now. Like, I mean, you're in a major city, L.A., that, that tends to get the... The even Thanks for the, saying that. Yes, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> if anybody wants to find Joe, that's where he is. It's um, a major city, though. I'm going to be hard to find. <laughs> that's true. Um, you know, th- those uh, those movies, like or those those cities, New York and L.A., tend to get like more than a dozen releases every week. It's it's crazy, and this has been going on for years and years. But I think um, it's it's always worth kind of thinking about and bringing back up just how different anyone's movie year can be. Like I could see 200 movies in a year and they could be none of the 200 that you see, you know? And, and, um, I think it's really interesting because, uh, it, it just got me thinking about like, I've been so like excited about movies the last couple months. And I, if I look back, well, a lot of the stuff I've chosen to see, most of which we've discussed on the show and even some of the stuff that hasn't come up on the show, I've like liked or been like over the moon for. So it's really interesting to me. This is like, uh, seeming to be a really strong, uh, overall year of movies, but that's also kind of forgetting and negating like all the other stuff that comes out, you know, the, the geo storms of the world or, uh, the snowmen of the world, you know, stuff like that. So, um, 
I don't really know if I have a point beyond that other than it just it's it's just interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited about movies, but I guess there's an easy argument to make that there's plenty of crap still coming out. Yeah, I think that it it's also it, it, I think we've touched upon this like a lot that like because there is such an abundance of options, people tend in that sort of over choice, like they tend to just like want to narrow it down and be like, and if there's a cultural conversation to still be had that has any sort of coherence and urgency to it, they, people want to like latch onto what that conversation is. And so those are, those tend to be like the bigger titles. And that tends to be the sort of like the more comforting choice. And so like Marvel movies are going to be what people continuously go to. And it's just like, and they they maintain a, a functionality and an efficiency that I think is reliable and people take comfort in that. But there's also kind of very little risk involved. Mm-hmm. But then outside of that, if you like I'll be talking to my dad, for instance, and um, he's very interested in movies. He's the one that got me interested in movies. And he'll reference like titles like I've never heard of. And I like to feel like I have like my ear to the street for the most part. <laughs> he's like. He's like, oh yeah, we watched a uh, Quiet Life or a Quiet Passion. I was oh, gonna yeah. a fake title, <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck is a? Qu-? That sounds like this a spoof of an art house, a Merchant Ivory movie in like the mid nineties. Yeah. You know, it's a Terrence Davies movie. Just like, what's that? Oh, it's a Terrence Davies movie. We showed it at a uh, festival earlier this year. Anyway, of course you did. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's just like there's stuff like that where it's like I'll look at the sort of like outer art house theaters that like are kind of getting more and more squeezed to the like far ends of people's like cinema going experiences and look at the like lineup of what they have. I'm like, I've never heard of three of these movies and they're only playing five, you know? And I'm, (laughs) so it's just like, it's, it's interesting. It's also kind of like lonely and weird, you know? And so it's just like, what, what makes something rise above the sort of like din of everything speaking up all at once, you know? And like, Mm Sometimes that's just the safe option, like the Marvel movies. And not to demonize those, you know, yeah. even though we will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, and then the the movies that like equally rise above the din have to take like these, you know, they, they, ha- they have to have something unique about them. They have to have some sort of competitive spirit that like makes them rise above everything else, you know. And uh, we're, we talked about horror movies on the last episode and how that kind of how the the language needs to adapt to sort of like speak to the concerns of now. And I think comedies are no different and comedies are sort of, it's a, it's a genre that will most of the titles we're discussing this week sort of can be under the banner of comedies for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of a stretch because one of them's a coming of age movie and which, you know, leans towards the dramatic side every now and again. And then the other one is just a straight up confrontational pitch black comedy cringe Um, comedy too maybe yes um but comedy i think is something that like you can identify when something is timelessly funny but it's also a genre that can be so instantaneously dated and like that dating it makes it like very hard to kind of like uh to access what made it funny in the first place, you know, like for a lot of people who watch it outside of the context of when it came out. So like for a while, I've just been looking at comedies and trying to divorce myself from my own nostalgia from stuff that I've liked and be like, okay, what, what about this is sort of timelessly funny. 
And how do you have that and also sort of focus in on the anxieties, the neurosis of the times and try to flesh out comedy of like the moment and the sort of urgent concerns of right now, like the way horror movies are able to capitalize on the unease and sort of like focus in on it and elicit dread. Like how do you elicit a sort of explosively kind of relieving response from the absurdity of existing right here and now? (laughs) It's a good question. It's a very good question. Uh, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's the other thing too, is, um, even defining, you pointed it out, defining these two movies we're going to talk about as straight up comedies is going to be, it's, it's a misleading thing, but do we fall into that because we're just trying to cut through all the noise to get some attention on these movies to make, if you know, and doing our small part to, and everybody else that talks about the two films, like to try to, to try to make these movies a part of the major cultural conversation because they both need all the help they can get, which is kind of amazing because I'm a big fan of both the movies we're going to talk about today. And I, I think at this point we've drawn it out long enough. Uh, they, they are uh, the square, which, was the uh, Palme d'Or, a.k.a. Best Picture winner at the Cannes Film Festival uh, earlier this year, and then uh, yet another A24 release uh, that uh, I really like um, is called Lady Bird. So, um, yeah, it, these are the two movies we'll be talking about, but um, I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, before we like totally dive in, is, is that something... Is that, so, is that what we're doing? Are we just falling into that, that easy sort of... Um, easy description of a movie just to try to get attention. Is it worth that? Or in some cases, will, will that mislead people to go see something like the square and then they'll be bored by it or they won't, they'll be confused or I don't know, worse. Uh, well, I think if if we could just jump into the square right away, I think they're, they're always going to be confused by the movie. And I think that like, Labeling something as a comedy has a lot of baggage to it and a lot of expectations that if you're trying to make a sort of broad crossover appeal out of a movie, you're always going to upset them, especially with something as kind of like lengthy as the square is and something as like just confrontational in nature as the film itself is. Mm, Yeah. Which like the the movie basically is kind of similar to – killing of a sacred deer like i feel like there's a density to it and a sort of uh, a variety of subplots and stories and characters that is like kind of ripe for a novel and it has like the sort of expanse that a, a novel would have but there are so many beautiful pictures in the film and yeah. so many great moments that you like are kind of like treated to see like live out with like the the actors that are portraying them, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, there's just so many like beautifully rich, uncomfortable moments in the film that like you sure could, it, it could read it a book just fine. But like there's, there's, there's like a real not treat treats the wrong word, but uh, <laughs> you know, like there's just, there's something urgent and something inherently cinematic about the film, which is basically about, uh, the modern art world and what I understood the movie to be about, which I'm glad I didn't watch the trailer to give it away. But like, mm. I thought the entire movie, cause the way the synopsis sort of played out was about this confrontational performance art piece. Right. So like there's a scene towards the sort of conclusion of the movie. that's like what? 10 minutes long. 
Yeah, most of the scenes play out very long, like long form like that. But yeah, I think that's a that's a fair. But guess. yeah, there's a there's a scene where someone kind of imitating a is it a baboon? Yeah, or, or, yeah, it's one of the actors who actually did all the motion capture work for the new Planet of the Apes movies. Oh, yes. what a nice connection! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So he he's brought into this like fancy kind of gala museum event where all the the you know it's a it's a black tie event where all the donors and members of the museum get to sort of get this exclusive performance experience and it's this gorilla stalking and menacing this room and uh you know like pounding on tables and like basically pushing people to the threshold where they have to react and from what i understood from like reading the synopsis it cans like i thought that was the entire movie (laughs) that was like and that's what the sort of stills are from or from that scene right but like there's so much more to the movie than that and like i was it was a treat to sort of get dropped into this like already sort of built-in absurdist world of like modern art and sort of how up its own ass it constantly is and how like seemingly fraudulent and counterfeit it can always seem while still trying to like maintain its relevance. And so the main character runs this art institution that is like forever trying to like establish its like its relevance. And it's just kind of about modern art attempting to capture contemporary concerns as those contemporary concerns are bleeding into the lives of the people that run the institution. Mm. And, uh, and so it's, it's about people kind of like getting pushed to a threshold and needing to act, but not knowing how to do it or deal with the consequences of it. (laughs) And it's like, like it's, it's so brutal at times, like in the same way that killing of a sacred deer is brutal. Like it's, it's not quite bloodlettingly brutal, but like it's, it's socially, it's like, we called it cringe comedy, but cringe, uh, it seems to be like a, a very, you know, like, adorable word for it because it's like, it's like wince comedy yeah and in in an era of profound discomfort already it's just like who will seek this out you know well you know so far it's it's only been a limited release but it, it's doing well you know especially considering yeah. it's a two and a half hour european yeah. art film yeah but it it's it's to me, um, the only reason I will compare it to a movie like Tony Erdman, which uh, you know was was a Cannes Film Festival title uh, from 2016, and for most people came out at the beginning of this year at certain art houses. We had it at the theater I work at, and that one had a similar sort of. Um, a lot of people, a lot of critics, really went for it, and even though it was like nearly three hours long, and it was very clearly a, a very art house heavy European title. Like it had these moments of absurdist comedy. And um, I, I think the movies will play similarly where they'll do, they'll do fine, you know, but like in, in the States. But uh, I think if people are willing to give something like the square chance, I think, I think there will be people that are just straight up bored. They'll, they'll, they'll not be invested within an hour of the movie and that's fine. But I think there'll be some people that would actually find there's so, like you said, this movie is so densely packed with ideas. Um, It's ambitious, but I actually think it succeeds in most of its ambitions uh, that I think people will be pretty like they'll be taken with this movie. And for me, it's not the kind of, laugh out loud comedy although i can think of two sequences one you referenced already uh at certain points 
that are so that I cracked like I laughed out loud. Um, another one is uh, the use of a viral video. And when you actually get to see what this <laughs> what this yeah. video is, um, the the sick person in me laughed hysterically. I couldn't help myself. Um, and it's because everything is given such. This movie is all about context and consequences, as you you pointed out, where within the context of uh, and the angle, the perspective that this movie is trying to give you. It's all like incredibly brilliant and then also just razor sharp. And and I think the key that makes the square work um, even more effectively, but in a similar way to Tony Erdman, is that neither of these films are mean spirited. And the square especially could have very easily been a mean-spirited movie. And I think instead it presents all of its characters, um, especially its main character, it's this Danish actor named uh, Klaus Bang or Bang. Uh, I've not seen this guy before, side note, and he's incredible in this movie, the Mm -hmm. the lead actor. But everybody else, the small supporting cast, you got Elizabeth Moss is in there, Dominic West pops up as a... Uh, a Julian Schnabel surrogate. Did you did you catch that by any chance? No, I didn't put that together. That, that was supposed to be who it was. But uh, uh, friend of the show, Nick Bruno, had made me aware of it beforehand. But um, I think I would have. Uh, so I don't know if I would have caught it myself. But I think it's there. As soon as he pops up, Dominic West in the movie, and he's wearing pajamas. Like uh-huh. that's. I think it's a straight up. Uh, I had to agree with, with Nick Bruno on that one because it, I think it's definitely poking fun at at him a little bit or he that was the type that west was going for mm-hmm. um but and nonetheless they're poking fun at these characters in these movies but more i think more honestly is is that they're just presented as the complex real people that they are and mm-hmm. it's left up to the audience to decide like are you gonna laugh or are you gonna cringe are you gonna walk are you gonna rip you know are you going to stand back and want to get away from it? it? It's it leaves it open enough for you. You're going to have to feel how you feel about it. And beyond just the movie wanting to get laughs out of the audience, I think it wants to get every range of emotion and just get your brain cooking about like just the complexities of this modern world. There's just like you said, that like that is the thing about this movie that blows me away is how packed it is with ideas. And I don't think anything gets lost in in the fray, which is um, an accomplishment. And, you know, I think it's worth saying this director, Ruben Oslin, he's a Swedish filmmaker. We both championed his previous movie, Force Majeure, which <clears throat> I believe is still on Netflix. And if you have not seen it, oh, my gosh, watch that movie. It's phenomenal. But The Square seems like this. It's this crazy, like, it's it's the similar concerns of this filmmaker. He's He's definitely operating on a similar level, but I feel like this is him expanding his reach and mostly successfully. So... Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a I'm a really big fan of this movie, and I actually can't wait to see it again because I just think there's so much going on that I want to approach it again. Yeah, there's like he he has a way of sort of like zooming in on kind of contemporary manners, like and how how our posturing and how like there's just like there there's a sort of encroaching concern of like the world around us, uh, kind of compromising our posturing and manners and like so in force majeure it was about like a guy who basically is exposed as a coward in front of his family and then like the rest of the film you know as as opposed to it being like a a survival epic of a family's you know trying to like 
get through an avalanche an avalanche happens he reveals like his kind of true nature the father and then <laughs> yeah. and, like presses the fallout from that sort of reveal and like the 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 sort of like the absurdity of like where we're at and how we're we are ill-equipped and there are like genuine genuine consequences and and real stakes in the world around us and I think that's what like the the kind of absurd art world in the square is attempting to sort of like posit like to to the to the the public coming to the museum and then like the real world starts to kind of like infringe on the main character. And then, you know, it's just it's just about like your sort of posture breaking down. And it's I don't know, like it there. It's always refreshing to just finally get something attempting to confront something right here and now yes. and as as timeless as comedies can be there is something that's so satisfying about one that's tackling very contemporary urgent concerns and uh there's just like there's there's a a lack of shyness in terms of its confrontational nature that like you know you mentioned that it wants to get you to feel a variety of things and so there's like there's dread there is like sorrow there's like there's just you know actual you know empathy that like the 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 movie kind of made me feel halfway through um a little bit like a michael henneke movie Mm -hmm. where it was like it the the sort of plot kind of shadows cachet a little bit about how a guy confronts who he thinks is responsible for something that happened to him and then the consequences of that kind of like uh, of of that confrontation eventually like echo into his life afterwards, and that's very much cachet. And mm-hmm. there's a filmmaker Benjamin Dickinson who made um, uh, Creative Crit- Control. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he called out Killing of a Sacred Deer. He's like, oh, it's like cachet, but not as good. And I was like, oh, well, that's mean, and I don't agree with you, but I think the square is actually closer to cachet in that sense, but like, you know, obviously a lot more funny than cachet, <laughs> like cachet, but funnier, which is what you're waiting for after <laughs> you were terrified halfway through that movie. That's what you're waiting for. 12 people on the planet <laughs> who saw cachet. Well, yeah. this was at a time when people were actually still going to even art house movies. Like point, I remember that, you know, people, crowds crowds showed up to see cachet that's awesome that's awesome um i think we're far from that at this point but mm-hmm. um yeah i did, like uh it's it's interesting to you know force majeure was a it was an oscar contender right it actually didn't get the final it was in the like oh, short was, okay yeah so it was it was in the running as a yes. contender but then didn't get nominated but uh i think that's that's what sort of broadened its appeal to people. And I, I remember, you know, going to see it and having an uncomfortable elevator ride straight out of the movie itself with people who had just seen it as well. Like, oh, it's depressing. And I was like, well, yes. Like, why not? Like, why not like be depressed at like an accurate assessment of who and where we are, as opposed to just cartoon caricatures that have no real resonance, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. I, I think also with the square and and with force majeure is that um, you had brought it up. Like I think these movies will like. 
I, we can't we can't know right now, but I think they'll hold up in a way that most comedies don't. I think is what you're getting at. Like your your average comedy is only really designed to work within that short time span where it's going to be in theaters if it goes there, and then maybe where it still gets enough tension that people might want to rent it online. Yeah. Yeah, I think that window is shrinking so much that I think the filmmakers almost care less. It's like, we'll just make, fill it with as many current references as you can. That, the kind of like Family Guy, Seth MacFarlane style, I think that has still seeped into a lot of uh, modern mainstream comedies. Although I have to admit, I'm only kind of seeing that from the outside looking in because I just tend to not see a lot of those mainstream comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, however, like The Square is something that is very much about concerns, uh, you know, things, themes going on right now. And it's layered all in there to a really phenomenal character study, which uh, I think is the reason that it will hold up. It'll still be good to see. It'll be more like a time capsule effect as opposed to dated. If you were to look at it 10 or 20 years down the road. Also, it's, it's willingness to, to like deal with darkness and to, and to stop, and like have it and to go long to be two and a half hours, which is like an hour longer than most conventional comedies. (laughs) And like, you feel it, like you feel the weight and length of the movie at times, but like it's willingness to sort of like go dark and stay dark is I think what, what will ultimately lead to its timelessness because it's not compromising. Mm -hmm. It is not strictly an engine for sort of jokes and non sequiturs, which I think is what unfortunately ultimately dates a lot of comedies. And um, there's a movie uh, that came out a very long time ago uh, <laughs> in the 1970s. And I saw it in the last few years, but uh, it's called Little Murders Whoa! Okay. Uh, with Elliot Gould. And um, it's directed by Alan Arkin, like one of his only movies he's directed. Okay. And uh, it's based on a play and it's like it, you know, it's from the early 70s. But it's kind of about like a a sort of kind of exaggerated version of where modern day was then. So it's just like everything is spun out of control and in decay and just super fucked. And like uh, Elliot Gould plays this kind of just apathetic guy who's given in to the fact that he's going to get beat up every time he goes outside. And he's just like he's a he's not a nihilist, but he's totally apathetic. And he meets this kind of high strung, super optimistic woman. Mm-hmm. And they have their meet cute while they're both getting beat up outside. <laughs> and uh, and so the the rest of the movie is them sort of like his begrudging courtship and them getting together and then getting married. And um, and like if you watch the movie, like despite its sort of like cynicism, like you're just sort of like, ah, there's 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 a zaniness that dates it. There's like this is very much of its time. And then the movie hits this section where something awful happens. And it's like it's a buoyant, bubbly comedy, despite all of its like kind of like dark humor. Uh, And then it just stops and it's tragic. And you're just like dealing with it. And like there's a there's an image of Elliot Gould covered in blood and he's standing on the subway just out of out of his like he's out of himself because he's just like devastated. Mm. And there's all these people who are staring at him sort of like kind of angrily because they just they don't want to deal with him. He's he's in a sort of like bubble of his own isolated tragedy. (sighs) They don't want to deal with him. And it's just like the movie stops cold and it's like this is awful this is where we are. We are going to sit in this and you are going to deal with it. 
And that was what the timelessness of the movie accessed. Yes. You know, like, like there is, there was a sensibility, a banter, a kind of like, meh, 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 like just something kind of like sort of old Woody Allen-y about the back and forth that was like, all right, this is what's dated about it. But what the movie ultimately, its strength is in that confrontational nature of like, all right, let's really dig in. Because like when the movie does sort of sing again, when it hits its kind of comedic peaks, like you've really dealt with something that's truly timeless. And I feel like that's missing a lot now, like not even just in like comedies or movies, like we don't stop. We don't stop and deal with like what's actually happening and like truly letting the totality and enormity of what's going on really resonate we're affected and we're sort of crippled and like just sort of uh, overwhelmed, but we don't stop. Yeah. And like, that's what like the movie does beautifully. And I think that's what the square ultimately does is it doesn't, it isn't just an engine of like quick jokes and easy jokes. There's like devastating pictures in this movie. Yes. And towards the, the end, especially like there's just a beautiful ad busters type overhead shot where it's like, holy shit, like that's it. I wouldn't want to show this and give the moment away because mm-hmm. it's so beautiful and so devastating, but like it's really worth sort of going through the, the motions of the <laughs> wincing and the cringing to get to these things. You know? Yeah, totally. Man, are you just without giving too much away? Are you referring to a shot that goes up a staircase, a spiral staircase? Um, or is it over a garbage? Oh, okay. Okay. Don't, Hey, shh, quiet. I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. Because there are these moments in the square where it's like, holy shit, like a a filmmaker made this. And it's the things that it's what makes something that is very novelistic in its approach. And in, in it's, um, the square is a very plot heavy movie, but it's in the scenes where it, where it's structured differently because each scene plays out like a long short, like a short story and it combined together. All the vignettes actually make a cohesive whole and it's really impressive, but then you get these amazing visuals and force majeure as well. Austin's previous movie, like also was visually just, just stunning. And I think he really understands how to make his movies movies, you know, like cinema and they belong in a big screen. Uh, even though they have to like wrestle and fight for some of these big screens just to get that attention. And it's, it's, uh, that's what elevates it as well as the timelessness of what you're talking about, because it's really interesting to hear that for one, I have never heard of little murders and that sounds amazing. I need to see that movie, but just to see that a movie at a time where there were no cell phones and it's like, just to be reminded that like everybody has been distracted or afraid of reality encroaching on their bubble. Even Mm -hmm. back then, that's, that's a human trait. And I think that's really that sort of universal thing to, to go back and watch something from a time and be like, Whoa, it didn't even require cell phones to be uh, apathetic or to be detached from what's going on around you. And then the square twists that even further by like presenting its lead character as someone who in the beginning of the movie tries to stand up for someone in public who, uh, you know, it seems seems to need help. But then and then there are other times where he can help, uh, you know, like homeless folks. And it's it's just so interesting. Like and that's I think what I meant by the beginning where I was trying to say it would have been easy to make him a cartoonish buffoon. But he's not. He's a complex person. He's trying to do Everybody in this movie is trying to do their best. It's just they don't have the 
they, they're just not built in a way to like see the consequences of things. And that's sort of the, that's the, the gauntlet that this lead kick character gets just pulled through in this movie. And why I think it's both satisfying to see him kind of have like the, like it's one of those movies where it's like a week from hell. I don't know how much time elapses, but yeah, he, this guy is going through, it's like a Job, like, uh, or like a serious man, the Coen brothers movie. It's like that sort of like, he's just being put on trial essentially, but he did this to himself. And we know that because we're allowed to see him out. Like we get to see him where he, in a way that he cannot see himself. And it's that lack of self-awareness that leads him down this path. And, it's arguable how much he, how much his arc leads him to a better place at the end. Um, but another thing I won't reveal that I thought was almost like a quasi twist in this movie is about an hour and a half in, you learn something very major about this lead character that shocked me in a way. And I thought it was one of those things where like, whoa, it's not like the plot thickens, but like this character deepens all of a sudden. And it's mm-hmm. just something about his personal life that you find out. And that's where the movie is still funny, but turns to that era of tragedy that I think you were referring to, where when you really get down to it, what's being handed down, you know, to, to, to different generations, to other people around you, like what is being handed down and who can see through your bullshit the most. Um, there's just so much. So for this movie to be operating on all these levels anyway, and then to just continue to like the layers being unfolded and then the ripple effect of the narrative. It's just this, I don't know, man, the square is a really impressive film and um, it's, it's why it's so fun to talk about. But again, it's why I need to like go back and see it again. Cause there's so much going on. Yeah. Take the, uh, take our listeners with you. You know, we should we'll all <laughs> take, we'll take groups with us, you know, for when it, when it actually opens in Portland. Yeah. We, we had to push it back and it's going to come in a couple weeks for us in November 7th. Portland's not ready. We are, <laughs> we are not ready. Everything else we're showing is just doing too well. So we just had to postpone it a little bit, but yeah, huh. that's a good, good. Yeah, it is. It's a good problem to have for sure. Well, it's, it's interesting and we could probably use this as a way to kind of pivot to our, our next title. It seems like there's a lot of films dealing with, uh, what we're kind of leaving children with, you know, and like, especially with the square, which like to not give it away, but there, there is something about like the world we're leaving for our, like our children, you and I don't have any children, our figurative children, you know, like our, the world's children. Um, and like another A24 movie, Florida project is definitely dealing with that from the perspective of children, seeing the sort of like wounds that their parents are carrying through the world and how they're unable to reconcile those. And like what will become sort of the children's wounds that to then they'll have to grow into. And, uh, Lady Bird, um, Greta Gerwig's uh, new new film. She wrote and directed. Uh, it takes place in Sacramento about a, a a young woman in her last year of high school and sort of dealing with her um, her fan, her struggling family. Who like uh, you know she's got a, an overworked mom, a depressive dad, uh, a brother who lives with his wife. Is it his wife or? It wasn't clear. I thought that they might have been brother and sister, but they're like adoptive kids, I guess, at least. No, they're they're romantically involved. Oh, shit. So, yeah, they're not siblings. I guess I <laughs> but, don't. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, so like it's this it, it's the story of Lady Bird and her like attempt to sort of you know, become an individual. And like there there is that kind of same burden of like 
seeing the parents and how worn down they are and like who will this will this person become who they need to become in spite of it or because of it you know and like and and the sort of world she's kind of like coming into and this is a it's a period piece it's an interesting choice for a period piece too because it's mm-hmm. like i think it's a really smart choice one because it probably resonates with Greta Gerwig herself you know mm-hmm. like this is the time that she was kind of coming about in, but it's also a relatively untapped period for like, you know, like a a time capsule piece. Like Mm -hmm. we haven't really seen 2002, 2003 revisited yet. You know, we've, we've been hung up on the eighties since the eighties and (laughs) now the nineties have caught fire. But yeah, 2002, like it's, it's interesting to like look at that period and be like, I don't feel like there was much, there there weren't a lot of identifiers besides like chunky iPods. Like what, what was really identifiable about 2002, 2003, but this movie is able to access that, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I was listening to uh, the frame podcast and Greta Gerwig was on there and said specifically beyond the very obvious, like autobiographical elements of setting it in that time is she just wanted to eliminate smartphones. I mean, she knew cell phones would obviously still be a part of this world, but she, mm-hmm. uh, and I loved the way she put it. it. It wasn't a knock. She's just saying like, I just don't think they're that interesting to look at. And it's hard to make a modern day movie, a coming of age movie about teenagers where smartphones are not a major part of it because it's not truthful otherwise for the most part. Like that's how they communicate. And I just yeah. love that she said they're not that interesting to look at. So she's already approaching this movie from the standpoint of like, what's the most visually satisfying way to present this. And I think it's one of the elements that elevates Ladybird uh, to being more than just a coming of age movie or just, a, it's more than just the average coming of age comedy. I think there's subtly a lot going on with the style here. I think uh, the fact that she is um, she has worked and uh, been in a relationship now for a while with Noah Baumbach. You know, she starred and wrote several of his films, Francis Ha, Mistress America, um, Gre- uh, Greenberg. I-, I think she's been developing her directorial voice as she's been working not only with Noah Baumbach, but like other filmmakers she's been uh, collaborating with and working on their, their movies. And it's so cool to see... Uh, someone get a chance, right? Get that first chance to make a movie, which has got to be difficult. And then she just like, it's like the confidence in this first movie from her. It does not play like a first feature. And I, in fact, I think making that a major point of discussion that this is her first movie is important because it's the truth, but it almost like undersells the movie in that way because you wouldn't know it's a first time movie because the editing is so strong. The way the movie is cut and has these like razor sharp, like hard cuts from scene to scene. A lot of the time I, I noticed that there's a similarity from what Bombach did in the Meyerowitz stories and some of it, which we talked about recently. And some of his other previous work uh, has been all about this. Like how, how hard can you cut from scene to scene? And sometimes in the middle of a sentence and it's not the exact same thing in Lady Bird, but I think she's operating on a similar level and again, that's not to say she's uh, aping uh, Noah Baumbach. I think she's got her own style. She's just learned a lot from these really gifted filmmakers she's been a part of. And it's so cool to see any filmmaker that's like ready to go and has a voice that demands to be on a movie screen. But also, like I've been following this actress for a while. I think you and I have seen movies with her for more than a decade. And it's mm-hmm. cool to see her... Um, 
there's more layers to Greta Gerwig than any of us might have expected or known. Yeah, I didn't know she wanted to be a director, but boy, I hope she makes more movies on on the basis of Lady Bird. Well, I think also the the timelessness that we're talking about with like a lot of comedies is like you just you have to also explore an unexamined kind of emotional truth that maybe hasn't been touched upon before. And that's what sort of like the, the more it illuminates the sort of like better off in terms of it's like, uh, how well it'll age, you know, right. like, and there are just, there are moments between, uh, the, the main actress. I'm so terrified of mispronouncing Sorsha her name. Ronan. Okay. See, I would have fucked that up so bad. I've only ever read the name, never heard it. So I wish I would have let you try <laughs> between just, we'd have to edit it out. Um, <laughs> Maybe we did. Uh, so between her and her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf, who like her, like her career of late, as a side note, like she was in Horace and Pete, the Louis C.K. show. Yes. Like her sequence in that is an unbroken, <sighs> I, maybe fifteen minute monologue. I think it's longer, dude. I think it's more in the like twenty five. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's just like, and it's like as you realize, like this is not going to cut. This is staying on her. And this story is all the more riveting because of it. Like, you're just like, I'm so glad we're back here with her. Like, she's great on Roseanne and she's been like a solid, you know, player in, in, in movies. But it's just like, oh, here we are again with her. And she like she's like even stronger now than ever before. So like scenes between her and her mom, they're so difficult. And you you realize that like, oh, I've seen power dynamics like this, like maybe in small hints when you and your mother or like someone and their mother. And it's just like, it's not, it has never been illuminated like this before. Right. And to not give anything away. Cause like the, the payoff towards the end of the movie is like you, it's, it's really like rich and then not in a completely unsentimental way, kind of similar to what we were talking about with the Meyerowitz stories. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's able to hit an emotional truth and have this, to access this like pathos without ever doing anything conventionally sentimental, you know, or or sentimentalizing it. And like, I think that's what the movie really does beautifully. And also like, we talk about this a lot that like setting has a huge, like for the character of the film setting it where I think she's from, right? She's from Sacramento. Yes. So setting it there, which is a place that's relatively unexplored in the cinematic landscape. And it's like, I've been to Sacramento like more than once and it's kind of a bummer. Like it's not, <laughs> but there, there's a, there's a beauty in that as well. Cause I've lived in bummer, small towns mm-hmm. and like there, there is a sort of like weird poetry to that. And there's like the middle of California has this kind of like, uh, kind of brown wasteland quality to it of just being kind of over sun bleached and kind of tired seeming. And like, that's, that feels like Sacramento. And like this movie is set there really kind of accurately captures that feeling. And especially the restlessness of being young in a place like that. Mm. And it's like setting it in a real place and really truly kind of loving the landscape that you're shooting in. It like that's what helps signify it and distinguish it from what could just be a glut of very typical conventional, you know, coming of age comedies. Right. And also it could easily fall into that trap of remember this thing from this time period or not that things are so different from now to 2002, but even worse would be like, Oh, the song choices and the pop cultural references. Although each one in this movie is used 
to a very specific end that I found like I was just blown away. Like, for instance, Dave Matthews band Crash, <laughs> a song mm-hmm. that everybody has probably heard more than they ever need to again in their life, is used so effectively in this movie in two scenes from what I remember. And it's it deep. It's it does. It actually works as character development, which is like mm-hmm. insane. I, I like the, the amount of thought and context she Greta Gerwig put into her script. Um, and it's that level of specificity that becomes it's that effect that can happen where it becomes universal because I I was around the same age. I, we, we, I'm this around the same age as Greta Gerwig. So I was growing up at around the same time, Mm -hmm. uh, but in a completely different place in, in Minnesota. But I know I still related to so much of what was going on with not only the setting and that feeling of like, you know, that restlessness or not knowing what to do with a place that you love, but maybe you only love it because it's the only thing, you know, and then you start to criticize it because you think you need to, you know, it's it's all that confusion is just so beautifully wrapped into this movie and just feels so honest. And then this like again, that that specificity just becomes universal where I could relate to anything that Sorcerer Ronan's character was going through, and I am a complete opposite as in terms of like gender, upbringing, uh, geography, all these things, right? That should be the the sort of obvious surface level things that I think uh, movie studios or even like more to blame are like marketing people for the studios think that it has to be all this like, well, this movie's for girls. So girls will go see it. Well, that's lady bird throws all that out the window. Cause it's just a great movie. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it's just like, it's weird that I have to be this shocked and like, you know, surprised that something like this can happen, but I just never thought I would see a movie that does that so well. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I just, I, the, the, I guess the last thing I want to say about it is, is how this movie for me, and I'd love to know which, how you experience it. It ping ponged me back and forth. Like I was be sort of choking up and crying from uh, a scene where Laurie Metcalf is probably arguing with Saoirse Ronan or where we get moments with Laurie Metcalf's mom character and the father character played by Tracy Letts. Like it's so good. So he's so good. He's so good. And honestly, I think Laurie Metcalf might be the MVP of this movie. Like she, mm-hmm. she, you're, I'd forgotten about that she was the in that scene in Horace and Pete, but she is really like, it's so cool to see an actor that you remember from something specific from your past. And yet you're just seeing the depths she has as an actor. And it's, it's incredible. And my heart, it's one of those, the, the mom and dad characters, like my heart just goes out to them in this movie because they are good people yeah. tr- trying to do their best. And they're struggling. Like people are still today and always have. And it's so honest about that and unflinching yet um i think some people could read the mom as being a pain in the ass or you know like it'll be interesting to see how she is she is right yeah exactly yeah and the way moms are yes you know because they care right that's what good moms i'm sorry go Uh, ahead (laughs) (laughs) i was just telling my mom she wasn't listening (laughs) moms are a pain in the ass i said except you mom but she's not (laughs) listening anyway uh like it's also like in the tradition of kind of coming of age movies, like, you know, like in the eighties you had the John Hughes movies, which were sort of all about like the conclusions often involved coupling up, you know, like it was important that you found that romantic connection that would carry you into young adulthood just after the closing scene of the movie, you know? So you had your breakfast clubs, your 16 candles, 
Pretty in Pinks, some kind of wonderfuls, not Uncle Buck. Um, <laughs> although Lori Metcalf, she was in Uncle Buck. That's right. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, so that's there's that connection. But this this movie is so like the 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 coming of age that happens. Like, sure, she has relationships, but they're incidental to like the real kind of like the love that will carry on into her actual adulthood is the friendship and that gets prioritized. And like, that's something that's, that feels within the last few years, like kind of new, like it was, it was hinted at with girls trip earlier in the summer where it was like the friendship was prioritized over any sort of conventional romantic kind of conclusion in the end. Right. And like, and that, that's just, that's so that resonates so much, you know, and is, is so smart to sort of like go into that her friendship with her, like her good buddy that she strays from halfway through. And then like, that's, that's like, that's the true love that she finds is her friendship, you know, in, in her life. And that's what, that's the one she's going to remember above like the bad sex she had when she lost her virginity <laughs> or, you know, what her first boyfriend turned out to be, which I, I actually, I had a tough moment. There's a bit of pop culture in the background of the shittier boyfriend ah. on his wall is a rap, a poster for a rap album that I listened to quite a bit. And I was like, wait, is that a signifier of a shitty person? Like, because <laughs> that's, come on. Very beautiful touch though. Very per- period appropriate. I was like that yeah that album did come out in 2002 so what was it it was uh cannibal oxes first uh-huh. album so he has a poster for that the shitty kind of like introspective mumbly boyfriend sure but you know i think it was portrayed he he was that as a character but i think she kind of did him a favor as a character of like you can't deny the kid has good taste you know what i mean sure i, th- yeah. I think that's what it represents i mean the books he was always reading and it was almost made and framed like a joke a lot of the time that there'd be yeah. a party going on and he'd be at people's the history of the united states exactly right like that classic like anarchist sort of like a young brewing like doesn't trust anybody a paranoid kid like of course he'd be reading that right and that's that's what's giving him the cliff's notes for this sort of material that he spouts all the time and the movie lets him hang himself up to dry as a character but I, th- I think it's fair enough that like, yeah, the kid had good taste. He was on to stuff at least, you know? Yeah. I, th- I think that's the other thing is that no one's made an easy joke out of in the yeah. movie, you know? And there's, there's actually like, no one's kind of left, uh, slighted in terms of like their character development, but it mm-hmm. feels like there's so much, there's so many characters that kind of do there, there is a life to them that you're like, Oh, I wish like I actually wish this was longer so it could kind of go further into stuff. I mean, there is something beautiful about the brevity of it being like a nice 90 minutes, you know, but like there's obviously a life to all the characters in it that you kind of want to watch it accordion out a little bit and kind of give it room to breathe. This is not a, a, a criticism of the movie. Like, right. I, I feel like it's the appropriate length, but you know, no, I think I think it's the opposite. I think it's the opposite of a criticism. You know, you're, you're complimenting the movie. You, you, the characters are so rich and fully realized all around that you want more of it because it's like, wow, this is like, she's so, she understands this world and these people so much only in the way that you really can as an adult, I think reflecting back, you know, like the Greta Gerwig at the age of the Saoirse Ronan character in this movie could not have written it in this way. She, she might've written this story, but it wouldn't be the same and it wouldn't, it just wouldn't be as good. I think 
uh, and the movie kind of points that out in a meta way. There's like a conversation yeah. she has with her. Uh, it's not a principal, but one of the nuns at the high school she goes to. She goes to a, a Catholic uh, school sort of begrudgingly. But that was another thing that I found really refreshing as um, I only went to a Catholic elementary school for like through fifth grade. But th- she could have easily poked fun at that world. And yet it is the most balanced, fair and actually, there's like good people, good teachers, uh, people that care about their students. Like she could have made fun of that world, and she didn't. She and I think the yeah. eight, I think the 18 year old Greta Gerwig would have made fun of of that world, just like I did when I was that age. I looked back and I was like, ugh. But you know, they're not evil necessarily. You know, they're <laughs> like they're they're good people as well, just trying to do their best. And um, that. That was that was the kind of stuff that would continue to come up in this movie where I was like, I can't believe how how strong this is, how like how good it is. And then it would make me laugh and then it would make me choke up and cry. And uh, I just need to call back the the prom sequence you were referencing because I got so choked up on that because I related to what was going on with the Sorcerer Ronin character and her best friend that she sort of through about midway through the movie, she kind of ditches her to hang out with the cooler kids in school. I mean, mm-hmm. I did that to my closest friend when I was growing up in high school. And it, it just brought up these memories where like, it was that, I don't know, the kind of emotional response and relatability that I always want from something, a uh, piece of art. And Ladybird just gave it to me like one scene after another to the point where I had to text this friend and say like, for one, like we always talk about movies, but I was like, you got to see this movie, but also it just made me think about you, man. And, you know, I hope you're doing okay. And like, you know, you, it, it's the kind of movie where like, it's going to make you want to like talk to your mom or your dad or like your friend from the past. It's, it's powerful, but it, again, it doesn't rely on that sentimentality or weak nostalgia for it. It actually gets at it through strong storytelling and, and writing and, and acting all the parts coming together. You know, it would be an interesting counterpoint uh, or a double feature with Ghost World because Ghost World was like Ooh, came out yeah. around the time that like this film is based in. Mm-hmm. But there's like a style to the performance in Ghost World that's very, you know, like of its time. It's a sort of like tail end of the 90s. It's kind of a, a death of all of that apathy because it's pushed to its breaking point, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a posturing to the movie that, like, there is m- more of an emotional realism at play in Lady Bird, but it still is, like, the 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 two movies kind of, like, mirror each other a little bit in terms of, like, coming of age and, like, owning your shit a little bit, you know? Yeah, no, that's a really good... And I like that a lot better because I couldn't help falling on probably a much more easy and I would say lazy uh, comparison. And and that's to a movie like Juno because they're really not the same movie. Even the plots are complete. It has nothing to do with pregnancy or anything like that, Lady Bird. But- There's a great Lady Bird scene uh, that addresses pregnancy and abortion, though. <laughs> oh, that that is true. Exactly. It's just one of those things weaved into the, the tapestry so, so strong. That's true. Um, but yet for me, I just, I first came out of the movie thinking, well, this is Juno for people that didn't like Juno or were just sort of like, eh, like ambivalent about it. Um, I think it's a much better film about a similar time in someone's life. Uh, Mm -hmm. but really the comparisons end there. I really like that. That ghost world ideas, uh, is a, that's a, that's a good comparison. Double feature. I like it. Yeah. And that, to me, that movie still holds up despite its kind of posturing and, and style. For sure, man. So, well, uh, so, yeah, let's let, let's. I'm gonna probably see both 
again soon but uh we'll we'll see how these hold up over the years for sure well and with that why, uh, why don't i just address we are obviously not going to be doing uh our hold up pick uh on this episode uh it's still going to be i heart huckabees just not sure when that's going to come up but you know on, a, on an upcoming episode when it'll fit um just had to delay it because ladybird just for me came i mean i'd heard good things about it but came out of nowhere and i just think it demanded the uh you know, to be, to be comboed up with the square. So, uh, yeah, look for Iard Huckabee's coming down the road soon for us. Um, and, and we'll get to that when, when the time comes, but, uh, with that, why don't we wrap up episode 157 of adjust your tracking. So just chill to the next episode. You can find all our episodes at theplaylist.net. Uh, click on the podcast tab. You'll find all our shows there. Uh, all the shows on our playlist podcast network. Uh, you can, um, you can find our shows on iTunes, Spotify, uh, not Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, other places. I'm sure you can, uh, email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. But how about social media, Joe, where can people find us? Uh, at adjust your track on Twitter, uh, Facebook, adjust your tracking, like us. We'll you'll let you know when the, the podcast episodes are dropping and shit. That's right. And shit. I, I've been tweeting a little bit more. I've been trying to, I've actually, you know, been trying to, to do that more, probably more consistently than I ever have. So um, trying to do more than just released episodes on Twitter. Um, so yeah, follow us there if, if you're so inclined and uh, hit us up. And in any of those channels, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do that, we'll be very thankful, of course. Thanks for listening to the show. But, uh, you know, I got to thank you, Mr. Von Oppen. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks, Eric.